Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by Jodorowsky's Dune producer Steve Scarlatta and Josh Miller, where they explore some of the greatest movies that were never made, from E.T. 2 to Tim Burton's Superman, Night Skies to Star Trek The Academy Years. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of Star Trek, check out my new sci-fi TV series, Pandora, debuting on The CW and around the world on July 9th, starring Priscilla Quintana and Oliver Dench, and you can find out more by downloading the Unboxing Pandora podcast, available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Doctorman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And this is the Great Birds of the Galaxy. Oh, my. That's exciting. It's exciting because we're going to talk about the people that really made Star Trek what it is. The the creators, the the showrunners. You mean there wasn't just one? There wasn't just one. (laughs) That's, 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 you know, why don't you tell us, Darren, where this... This crazy expression, Great Birds of the Galaxy, comes from. Well, it actually uh, started in the episode The Man Trap, uh, where uh, Lieutenant Sulu was still a botanist, and he, uh, you know, he was down in the uh, uh, in the botany section. Botany but not Bay. The botany Bay. The not botany the Botany Bay. Bay. There is no Botany Bay. Um, and, uh, you know, he was basically just there to have salt delivered to him. Uh, so uh, <laughs> that was his function. Hold the pepper. Just <laughs> yeah. send me some salt. And so, uh, you know, Janice Rand comes in and, uh, and brings him lunch because Sulu is too busy playing with the plants. And uh, is Sulu, that, Sulu no, says, uh, she, brings, she brings his tray in and Sulu says, May the great bird of the galaxy bless your planet. And that's where it came from. Well, and, and, then, and then Bob Justman Bob started Justman calling. Bob started calling Gene Roddenberry that to sort of, you know. Anoint him. An, uh, and annoy him. <laughs> <laughs> Just, uh, you know, little needling here and there to keep him honest. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, it's it's really hilarious. I mean, you know, Bob Justman was extremely uh, bright and clever, and he has a series of memos that uh, explain how sharply witty he was and uh he he was very uh had a dry sense of humor and everyone on the production would enjoy these missives when they would come from bob justman's desk well i was gonna say really we should do an episode one day uh just on the uh bob justman memos because they are just as you say brilliant and acerbic and uh and they kept things real they did in a fantasy world well the other thing that we do um we have done from time to time which i would remind our audience is that we we post a lot of these memos from the trek archives on our twitter and instagram feed at inglorious trek and inglorious trexpert so if you want to see some of these memos um they're up there take a look they're up there yeah they're up there and And and, follow us you know because we'll talk about things on the show and it will inspire us to post stuff like recently we did an episode on uh, we talked about the James Blish novels and how right. gorgeous the art has been right. was on those covers, and we started posting them because we could. And it actually inspired me to uh, take scans of those covers and remove the text. So uh, I have now textless versions of those that I'm thinking of putting up on our Trexpert. That's uh, so funny feed. because I was wondering. I saw you did that, and I was wondering where you got the textless yeah, no, covers No, they from. don't exist anywhere that I could find. Right. So I had to, you know, as... As I did when I was a kid. When it doesn't exist, you make your own. Right. Like friends. <laughs> I'm sorry you had that experience, Ashley. I didn't. Friends. No, you know. Uh, Good. <laughs> I, uh, I'm i glad we're amusing ourselves today on the show. But uh, I have to say, you know, um, the, the, yeah, that's so cool, Darren, because that artwork was simply glorious, much like the war would have been between the Klingons and the Federation. Um, <laughs> had the Organians not stopped it. Those damn Organians. <laughs> um, they so, ruined everything. <laughs> so great birds of the galaxy it, it is an expression now that transcends gene it's it's a way that we talk about the people who have been important 
uh, uh, figures in terms of shepherding Star Trek over the decades. Um, but let's talk about Gene for a second and, and why he was such uh, an important figure. Obviously, he created the series uh, that and and uh, but he had a vision for the show that is a reason that here we are, fifty five years later, we're still talking about it. Well, he certainly he certainly was the. Um, the driving force behind certainly the inception of it and the continuation of it and its rebirth after its untimely demise, certainly. Um, Whether or not this was, you know, motivated by self-interest, I think there is an element of that. But I also think that he did have, you know, certainly after the years of uh, its original broadcast, he did have a vision of this uh, future that he helped to inspire. Um, he he desperately wanted mankind to move out of its childhood and aspire to this better world that Star Trek uh, projected. Um, and I think he truly believed in it, uh, you know, until, his, uh, until he passed away. Um, whether or not that actually helped get the show, you know, moving or not, and whether it actually, that feeling actually existed during the original run of the series, I don't know. Um, I do think that he certainly grabbed on to that spirit later on. Um, but I think at the time, he was just trying to get his show on and running and, you know, and keep it on, uh, you know, uh, maybe until the third season. Well, people don't realize that he was more than just, you know, he wasn't a figurehead, you know, especially in the beginning of those first 13 episodes. He was extremely, extremely involved in every aspect. Much to the chagrin of a lot of the hired on writers. Right. Actually. Because he would rewrite the freelancers. Everything. And a lot of these had, you know. Like that Harlan Ellison kid. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, and earlier than that, I mean, you have like the first story editor, um, you know, uh, Black. Right. Um, John D.F. Black. John D.F. Black. And, um, you know, who, you know, would hire it on. You know, he met Gene. He was really excited about the potential for the show, but then sort of realized that he was promising all these great sci-fi writers, right. you know, who had won Hugo Awards and who, you know, were acclaimed writers that, you know, they'd come work for the show and people were really excited. And then they would get rewritten by Gene. Now, there are two sides to that story. Can I, can I hold you just for a second? Because people are wondering who this gentleman next to you is, including myself, who haven't who haven't watched the fourth, who haven't uh, listened to the four thirty movie podcast. There's somebody sitting next to me. I thought that so- was an imaginary, imaginary Harvey, imaginary <laughs> friend, because you know I used to conjure up these friends, right? Much like you did as a, as a youth. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I'm so sorry, but we're so happy to have with us and have had with us for quite a long time, <laughs> Ashley Miller. Ashley is uh, not only um, writer-producer for television for such shows as Lar, uh, which uh, recently dropped on Amazon, but also Black Sails, Terra, uh, Terminator, the Sarah, Con- Cron- bleh, the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Say that and of 15 course times. Is, yeah, I won't. And, uh, you know, wrote, wrote such films as Thor and X-Men First Class and uh, is now working on the new Red Sonja. So it's but so great to- he's best known for his appearance on the 430 Movie Absolutely. Podcast. Yes, in, indeed. You know, at least, you know, he's finally achieved something in life. Right. So um, <laughs> we're so glad to have Ashley back here with us on Inglorious Trexperts. Hello, welcome back, Ashley. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm so incredibly pleased to be back. You know, I'm going to get this podcast hosting thing down one of these days. One of these days. You know what? I, it's okay. I don't think you should. I think you should just be your wonderful self. <laughs> I think you're just you're just used to my presence. Yeah, it's so true. I think yeah. it's just I'm I'm used to Ashley. The thing being is, here. this podcast and the others that we do are so comfortable, and that it's basically just us sitting around and talking about stuff that we do normally. Right? Can I say? So, you know, I was curious because obviously the podcast become very popular when you can actually access it on a, and, um, right. and, and it, you know, people really love it. And I was curious, I started listening to some other podcasts, you know, in the Star Trek space. Mm-hmm. Just, I was curious to see what other people were doing because I hadn't really listened to them before. And, uh, <laughs> there were some good ones. <laughs> sure. But I mean, I'm amazed when you listen to some of this. I, there was literally one show I was listening to and they're like, Hey, how you doing? good how's the weather back in new york it's 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 nice it's it's a little warm but you know it's getting a little cooler now and it's (laughs) (laughs) like what the hell 
Well, Who there cares? goes all of my topics of discussion. Weather is right <laughs> off. I'm Weather just... has always been an important part in the Star Trek uh, universe. And this really went ion storms. This, <laughs> you know, slightly cloudy chance of ion storms. <laughs> <laughs> the live Doppler 7 has shown the Hulkin planet is in danger of having... <laughs> the whole Hulkin planet. <laughs> but I was so amazed at, at the mundane conversations yeah. that were happening on some of these shows. Now, I know... Kind of like this one. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So I, I got a memo here. Okay. I got a memo here. Now, uh, this is um, to Gene Kuhn. Gene Kuhn, who we'll talk about in just a second, from mm-hmm. Gene Roddenberry. Just an example of, of Gene's um, uh, impact. Uh, this is uh, The subject is court-martial on Starbase 811. Now, that was the original title for... Right. Um, court-martial. For court-martial. It's dated September 12, 1966. Uh, before I was born. Um, Dear Gene, our only chance for action adventure in the script is to throw out about 50% of it at his presently stands. Concentrate on A, action in the court-martial, and B, action aboard the ship, as Kirk fights to prove he is not a liar. Right. For example, our teaser should begin. This is a really interesting insight into the writing process and the evolution of a script. For example, our teaser should begin right on the board of inquiry. And we should see on the viewing screen of the room a scene from the ship's computer tape, which proves that Kirk is lying. Seems to me, then, that the teaser hook is the board chairman adjourning the inquiry and announcing that a court-martial will be convened. Many scenes and sets following that should be thrown out. Not only are they unnecessary and terribly expensive to build, as BJ indicates. BJ. 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 Uh, Gene, get your mind. Oh, yes. Indicates. But the the What's story. Who is BJ? Bob Justman. Bob Justman. Oh, Justman. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, we got him. Bob Justman. Yeah, yeah. But the story goes too slow anyway. Janice Can I just Rand. interject something here? You because may. I'm imagining Gene Kuhn sitting with like pencils in his hand and he's slowly breaking them between his fingers and he's just me. But that wasn't Gene Kuhn's no. personality. Right. Gene was Gene Kuhn. Who came after John D. F. Black was gone? Stephen uh, Karabatsos. Karabatsos. Say that three times. Really, and 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 Roddenberry had just completely burned himself out, which is television will do to you very yes. quickly, uh, particularly creating a show like this that reinvent literally reinvented the wheel. Um, and uh, Gene was just a smoker, and you know, there's one really good photo of Kuhn. Um, because, of course, he died of lung cancer in the early 70s. So there's not a lot about him. Uh, but there's this great picture of him with a cigarette in his mouth on this manual typewriter. And, of course, uh, Gene... Churn, churning away. Churning away. And part of that was the drugs because Gene was always you know, doing uppers because he was literally writing like 24-7. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was an extra- he, extraordinary. And people were in awe that he could churn out a script in like a day or two. Um, but that was because he was, you know, I mean, it was like the beat poets. I mean, this he was is just the era like, before Diet Coke. Yes, this is right. pre Diet Coke. So I mean, he was doing, you know, he was doing ma- Coke. Ma- <laughs> ma- 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 major drugs, and um, but uh, you know, uppers to keep him keep him going. But he was so prolific. Um, and then it goes on. Uh, Janice Rand is completely out of place in her role. If we have someone and. Uh, She's never. She's not in the episode. She's gone by right. court martial, right. I believe. If we have someone working closely with Kirk, it should be Spock. And it, what's a good point? And at no time should Kirk and Spock have a, a hun, having a hundred man crew at their disposal be concerned with repairing and provisioning the vessel, other than broad scale policy and command decisions. So again, not to look at this specific note on court martial, but it's an indication of how involved Gene was right. early on. In every aspect of the show, he's talking about sets being too expensive. He's talking about story points. He's right. talking about how to make the uh, show more compelling. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, uh, is there is there other juicy things in that one? Well, it says. Ra- ra- I wish we had Gene here to read it, but I-, I will do my best. Rather contrasting with the stern jeopardy of the court martial, I'd like to see some of the life ashore. And again, they use a lot of naval terms in describing right. Star Trek. Um, I miss Commodores, by the way. I have to say, as an aside, yeah. I miss the the you know Commodore Schmidlap and Commodore <laughs> all, all those great Commodores. Uh, Commodore Matt Decker. I think Schmidlap ruined it for everybody. <laughs> you know, Commodore Stalker, Commodore Stone, Commodore that, Commodore, you know, uh, Commodore Commodore. They, even after um, 
the original series, even in the movies, they had dispensed with Commodores, but right. it, they never came back in Next Gen or anything. No. Like, well, really, a Commodore isn't a rank; it's a position, uh, and it's a position that probably a captain takes as the head of a task group or fleet. Uh-huh. So you don't really get promoted to, to Commodore. Commodore. Um, ah. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a position that you serve in. Have you ever served in Starfleet? My friend. <laughs> yes, actually, I have. I when don't think I, you have. <laughs> when I was five years old, I served in Starfleet. My friend, I took the oath and everything. I was in engineering, possibly security. I don't know. They cross leveled me back and forth. Finally, I beamed down to some planet somewhere. I didn't come back, but by God, I served. Who I put Matt Decker you. in charge of a task group? God. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Matt Decker was a great commander. He was. Well, he was great. And until then, he got, yeah. Something horrific happened to you. I would like to see you respond in under the same circumstances. I mean, I wouldn't like you to, but I would like to see how you would. You, he could have never foreseen the third planet would be destroyed. No. No, absolutely no, not. Could Who he? could have? I don't know. I think this sounds like an episode. Was Matt Decker that court-martial right. you know, in absentia? Retroactive. Was, was, was he a great ca- ca- command commodore? We don't know. But we'll have to talk about it because it's a very fascinating question. So anyway, Gene goes on to say, rather contrasting with the stern jeopardy of the court-martial, I'd like to see some of the life ashore, women, shocking, <laughs> recreation rooms, drinks, relaxation, etc. This, And also it's interesting they spell out etc. rather than ETC, period. Sure. Well, so. they had more letters in those days. This could also be a story for some change of costumes, such as civilian relaxation garb. Perhaps, if Bill Tice has it ready, the semi-formal dress uniform for Kirk and Spock. Right. Court-martial procedures seem rather haphazard in the script. Suggest our guide should be the regulations and rituals of present-day military court-martials. Why does Kirk go to Cogley? Because he's a strong-minded individualist? No, it can't be that, because Cogley demonstrates that only after they go to his office. So this is a, you know, the, the level... At he which... was a very thoughtful and creative producer. Yeah. Which he he was the remember. core. He was the core of it. And I don't think, even though I would argue that Star Trek's earliest episodes aren't its best episodes, there's a reason that the original Star Trek comes out of the box stronger than any subsequent Star Trek series. Right. Next Generation, most people would say, doesn't get good till the third season, even though it occasionally had a good episode first and second season. Mm-hmm. Deep Space Nine doesn't really improve uh, for a while. The first season's a mess, even though it has you know wonderful episodes. You know, Voyager, you know, some of us would say, well. never gets good. <laughs> but <laughs> um, anyway, so you can extrapolate what you want from that. But but the point being that uh, Star Trek has always struggled, and the original Star Trek succeeds and this is a show that didn't have a commitment right uh you know uh where you know you knew it was going to go two years or you knew it was guaranteed to go for a full season well because there was a a core idea and the person with the power had those ideas yeah and i think that it was so important for him to um you know to be protective of the idea that he didn't want it to be cheesy right. you know I, I he tells that story again whether it's apocryphal that um his parents back in texas um were asked you know what's your son doing you know these days they said oh he's doing some dopey science fiction thing right. you know that there was some kind of um you know it was just te- you know considered you know embarrassing to be doing a science fiction tv show at right. the time because it was associated with Irwin allen you know, that kind of storytelling. Well, and, and, you know, Captain Video. You know. Captain Video, yeah. yeah. It, it was, it, let's let's be honest, it was crap. Right. It wasn't even a prestige genre in features no. by any stretch of no, the imagination. No, not at all. That's not why all. if you look at that original Star Trek Bible, it's so impressive because he gave so much thought to the universe, to the way the ship works, to what uh, futuristic technology would really be. But this is also why he sold it as a Western. Right. It's because Westerns were the number one shows on TV. It was, you know, it was highly regarded. Though They were highly regarded in the in the mid to late 60s uh, because they had such a, uh, a staying power and people all across the country uh, watched it. Uh, oh, we have another. Yeah. And another I, wanna, I wanted to set this up because early on in the first season, again, Gene has just given his 
you know, his, you know, he, he's he's in the middle of a, a divorce, or he's soon going to be. Um, he's just uh, he's just completely burnt out on everything he's given to the show. And in the middle of the season, he decides he's turned the show over to Gene Kuhn. Gene Kuhn's going to run the show. Gene is going to get out of Dodge because he is just, you know, burnt out. And and this is the memo he sends to Bob Justman. Date October seventh, nineteen sixty six. To Bob Justman from Gene Roddenberry. Subject, the envelope. As indication of my vast and sincere regard for you, I leave behind while I am on vacation in the high desert some fifty or sixty pages of sheer genius. Read and weep, as did Alexander when he beheld the glories of Egypt. Humbly, Gene Roddenberry. That is such a great memo. And, you know, it's funny for people who felt that Gene took himself too seriously. That's a very witty memo. And the envelope, of course, uh, what he's referring to is the menagerie. Because for a long time they called that episode the envelope. Uh, uh, Originally, the cage had been called the menagerie. Uh, It was then changed to the cage. And so when they were developing what became the menagerie, it was only known as the envelope because they were trying to find a way... To integrate, to slide the first pilot into, into an, episode. an episode. Hence the envelope. Hence the envelope. Yeah, <laughs> and then the, the 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 you know the menagerie really sort of marks the departure of Gene as a day to day showrunner, right? And the emergence of Gene Kuhn, who some would argue had more to do with defining Star Trek than oh, any other. For sure. I mean, because look, man, obviously. Uh, Roddenberry was the was the driving force behind Star Trek and and what it was and what it became. Um, although a whole other discussion is whether or not Gene kind of lost the bogey on what made his show work in the first place by the time he got into the mid eighties. Uh, but um, the execution, as with everything, is key. And what Gene Kuhn really brought was execution, and he also brought a point of view. Uh, that was compatible with what Roddenberry was doing, what Roddenberry set out, but was also very much Gene Kuhn. Um, it reminds me of, I think it was an interview of, with all things, Mark, um, in Cinefantastic, possibly with you, Nicholas Meyer, talking about Star Trek VI. And it stuck with me. Um, and he said, you know, our job is to carry the ball. We don't mm-hmm. always carry it perfectly, but by God, we carry it. Yeah. And that was Gene Kuhn carrying that ball and just scoring touchdown after touchdown. And, you know, if you if you want sort of the, the proof of the, the difference, right, what a difference Gene Kuhn made and, and why he was so important, I give you season three of the original series. So you're going to give me the FBI. I'm going to give you the FBI. <laughs> the the butts in. But, uh... Does that help? Does that work? You know, it's funny you say that um, because, yes, that very much was from an article I wrote in Cinefantastic many years ago. And uh, the one thing I remember about <laughs> that was uh, I did a great interview with Nick Meyer. And uh, apparently I um, taped over the first 45 minutes with a Jimmy Doohan interview. <laughs> so when I went to Why tricks, would you go doing that? <laughs> <laughs> and And... I don't know because I hadn't labeled the tape or something. So I only had half that interview uh, because the cassette, you know, I was like, I went to transcribe it and it's like, why the hell is Jimmy doing? He has nothing to say about this movie. <laughs> Where, where's my Nick Meyer interview? Oh my I mean, I, I, it's funny because this is, you know, this is what, 25, 30 years ago. And I remember it like it was yesterday. And I was absolutely horrified. I've never had good experiences with Nick. And I, I, I have to say, I really admire and respect Nick. It has nothing to do with Nick. Um, I, when I was interviewing him for Fifty Year Mission, <laughs> I went to go interview him at his house, and he gave me the wrong address. So I'm like standing, and I'm like trying to reach him, and I'm like in Santa Monica, and I'm just like calling him, and like and it was freaking hot, and I'm like, why that? What the? Oh, this is what I get for not doing phone interviews, and um, and it's just like it was crazy, and uh, finally I get a hold of him. He's like, oh man, I'm I'm so sorry. I, I sometimes do that. I'm 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 in this part of town, not this part of town. I I I I gave you the wrong address and da da da. And I said, well, you know, what are we gonna do? He says, well, I can't do it now. Oh <laughs> no, my no, God. actually, he said, come over here, but I don't have a lot of time. So I I finally get there, and we had like ten minutes. Oh no! And I'm like, 
what the? And he yeah. says, yeah, well, you'll need to come back. I'm like, no shit. <laughs> wow. And, uh, and so. He sounds like a real wonderful person. No, no. He was, he was, he was appropriately um, uh, apologetic, okay. you know. You know, and he gave me, and look, he had good material. the The challenge with Nick is always to get him to stop telling the same story. Yeah, because of course, you he know, told he always the exact same story. He always tells the the you know, over. oh, Ricardo it was his real chest. Right. You know, I don't care about any of that. Yeah. And so, um, uh, you, you know, you need bit. time with Nick to really get past the repetition of the stories he's told a hundred times, like the story that he tells about Shatner, about. You know, getting Shatner to do it like thirty-five times before. Oh yeah, he got t- too tired to be the blustery right. Shatner. Right, right. And get to the realness. That's exactly apparently how it is with Nick Meyer. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so thirty-four I mean, more interviews. And the thing is, Nick has incredible stories. I mean, I love the story he tells about directing Ricardo, mm-hmm. and you know how. You know, Ricardo came and, you know, hadn't had been at rehearsals or anything. He just comes and he gives this huge, thunderous performance. And, you know, he calls him over and he says, listen, you know, if you, you know, you show an actor your top, you have nowhere else to go. And, you know, it's better to sort of underplay it because then you have somewhere to go. And he goes, you know, Ricardo goes, ah, you're going to direct me. I need direction. (laughs) And uh, and, so much the better. And and I love I love that story. And um, and it's true because, you know, and then he tells the story about it. I I think it was even Mervyn Leroy or, or Raul Walsh. He said he would just say. Make it a good one, right. you, know? <laughs> you know. And he said, "I need to be directed." And so, like those kind of stories, I love. And of course, you know, there's a really interesting thing about story about Nick that nobody knows. This is, I found this out. I mean, nobody knows. Nobody <laughs> knows. He's never told this story. I, I heard this from an executive at Paramount. It's the first time I've ever told the story, okay. and uh, it's a great story about how they got him to do Star Trek Six. So. Jeff Kleeman, who's uh, executive uh, in charge of production over Paramount, and has always loved Nick, good friend of Nick's, um, you know, and had worked with him, uh, you know, approaches him about doing, uh, you know, directing Star Trek Six because they were trying to get it going for the 25th anniversary. Mm-hmm. Nick turns him down, not interested. And you know the story. It's always Leonard came to me on a beach and convinced right. me to do it. Let's do the Berlin Wall. Right. Apparently, it's all BS. Of course so, it is. So, um, <laughs> so, you know. Kleeman calls up Nick and Nick's in Cape Cod and says, look, you know, this movie's not going to happen unless, you know, we can get you to do the movie. And uh, he says, look, I'm not interested. He said, but look, we're friends. You know, if you want to get Paramount to pay and fly you out to Cape Cod, we'll hang out. We'll have a great weekend and you can go back and tell them I'm not doing the movie. Right. Because. Nick didn't want to get pigeonholed as the Star Trek guy, right? He because this is a guy who fancies himself this great uh, bon vivant and, and literary icon and yeah. a deep thinker, and you know he didn't want to be you know the Star Trek guy on his tombstone. So Kleeman even goes, he disdained Star Trek. <laughs> so so Kleeman goes out to uh, to Cape Cod, and um, they're hanging out, and they're, you know, and 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 Nick dismisses the idea outright of doing Star Trek Six. And that night, they're back at the at the house, and they turn on the TV. You know, Star Trek Two is on TV, and they start watching it. And Nick, who hasn't watched it in many many years, this is before every three seconds they're doing a, a revival of Star Trek Two. Right. Right. You know, and and he's speaking. He hasn't seen it in probably since the premiere, right? Right. He's and he's getting wrapped up in Star Trek too. I remember that. And I remember that. Oh, and this—that's a really great shot. And he's getting excited, mm. right? And by the end of watching Star Trek two, I guess it was on ABC that yeah. Sunday night. He decides he's going to do the movie, hmm. and that's the real story of why he ended up doing Star Trek II, Star Trek six. It's an amazing story. That's interesting. That's interesting. Um. I wonder if that if that was actually uh you know kismet perhaps in in action or if it was something that uh, the uh, the executive actually knew was going to be on. He swears he didn't. He <laughs> swears it was a complete accident. Hmm. Um, it's like Howard Hughes calling out the station and saying, right. "Play Ice Station, Play Ice yeah, Station right. Zebra." Yeah, yeah. But um, it, it's really remarkable. And and again, Nick Meyer is certainly one of those great birds of the galaxy. Absolutely. In, in terms of 
uh, you know, regardless, uh, we all love Star Trek the motion picture here, but you can look at him and Harv as the people that saved Star Trek in a sense that the studio was ready right. to abandon Star Trek and said, here's a buck 95, go make another right. one. Maybe we can make a few bucks off of it. And he found a way to take these. And if you've ever read the various scripts of Original Star Trek 2, they're, they they're awful. Mm, yeah. And it's a testament to Nick, you know, that he was able to take these 12 or 8 drafts, the Sam Peoples draft with, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Betty Betty and Boop or whatever their names were, uh, Sojin and El Ray or... Betty and Boop. I don't Jack remember. Sowards. The two aliens that, yeah. that he, you know, uh, you know and, and basically... And then you had the Jack Sowards draft where Khan right. had superpowers. Right. I mean... Well, he was a super man. And... <laughs> And what Nick basically turned did it into Master and Commander was turn it into a story about aging and coming to grips with um, mortality, and and um, uh, you know it's really remarkable. And I think the fact that Nick was not a Star Trek fan and that he was, uh, you know, looked at a lot of his literary antecedents, you know, whether it be Sherlock Holmes or Moby Dick, uh, Horatio Hornblower, the things that he was, you know, was found obsessed with right. that he found interesting and incorporated them in Star Trek. You know, really turned death into a fighting chance for life in more ways than one. And those things persist to this day. Um, I mean, what he did in Star Trek II, I think you continue to feel that uh, in modern versions of Trek. Certainly, you know, Deep Space Nine, um, once it got, you know, into its third season and beyond, you could feel the influence of what Meyer had done in Star Trek II and how he had kind of redefined uh, the franchise. And, and you get bits of that um, even as far as in, you know, Discovery. I mean, there are pieces of that. Well, of course, Nicholas Meyer worked on that show for a little bit. But, uh, but you know, you can feel it, like, in the DNA of Yeah, the but show. he was sidelined sideline pretty Oh, quickly. yeah, for sure. But I just, yeah. I mean, like, in all of the versions of Trek, really, other than the next generation, where there was, I think, a, absolutely kind of a, a push to move it away from, like, the, the Nicholas Meyer-verse mm-hmm. of, uh, of, of the Star Trek world, that... Um, that you can feel just the fandom uh, for Star Trek II and for Nicholas Meyer and his sensibility kind of bleeding into Star Trek as it moved forward. And I think this all comes, you got to give credit to Harv Bennett because Harv Bennett, when he was put in charge of Star Trek and and Roddenberry was sort of sidelined and Harv was given the franchise, what did Harv do? Harv didn't say, oh, I'm not really a Star Trek fan. Star Trek said, I don't know much about Star Trek. He watched all 79 episodes the good, the bad, and the ugly, to understand what worked about Star Trek. When didn't, he didn't run from Star Trek. He embraced Star Trek, and even though he wasn't a fan. And, and I think, you know, even though he wasn't able to nail the draft, he was able to see in Nick Meyer somebody who could take this ball down the field and also shepherd it. And, uh, you know, what he did over those next couple of movies, I mean, we're not huge fans of Star Trek Three, but, you know, certainly Star Trek Four was a tremendous commercial success most people love it um you know and then with five you know he deserves a great deal of the credit again for sustaining star trek and sort of uh giving life to that movie franchise in a future episode we'll talk about his starfleet academy idea which was um a precursor in many ways uh to uh, what jj did many years later right it's it's interesting um i you know i do not take anything away from Harv Bennett's uh, contribution to uh, the Star Trek mythos and uh, the films. I think that while those things were excellent and really well done in Star Trek II, I think that the the mere fact of bringing Spock back in Star Trek III is a cop-out. And I think it hurts Star Trek at its, at its core... Um, more than the advantage of having more films, you know, bringing in money for the studio. I know that's the entire purpose for the films. I know that. I'm saying that perhaps, at least in my mind, the uh, the continuation of Star Trek after that point uh, was lessened in my mind, and because it's because it betrays sort of its core. Uh, heart and any, you know, any real consequences ever again. You know, well, once you bring Spock back, everything's on the table now. 
so you can do anything you want. Yeah, we've talked about that before in other episodes that, you know, Star Trek Three that bring back Spock, as much as he was a beloved character that you wanted to see again, that that was a commercial consideration. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the right story right. decision, you know, that watching these characters wrestle with life after Spock was, right. would have been a lot more interesting. Yeah. Plus, unfortunately, it empowered Leonard in a way that wasn't necessarily always useful to right. the franchise. Also, it, it didn't, I mean, look, we could talk forever about Star Trek Three, probably, but it bought we back. One yeah, day. for sure. It bought back all of Star Trek Two. Um, literally, every single consequence of Star Trek Two is undone in Star Trek Three. Right. Uh, David Marcus gone. Uh, spoiler alert: um, <laughs> <laughs> the Genesis planet gone. Uh, you know the Enterprise gone. Right. I mean, it just it, and Spock back. Uh, it, so it, it's it was this it was this reset button. Yeah, that made Star Trek II basically. If you were just watching it as continuity, you could just say, "Oh, you don't have to see that because nothing really happens." Right. So let's watch the thing with the whales now. Right. Right. Now that's look. That's a a really really good point. I think we you know we should we'll have to talk about Star Trek Three some more because um, not right now, but uh, (laughs) but because I mean you know it's it's I think it's it's not something that's commonly discussed. I think most people feel, oh, it's great to have Spock back. Yeah. Now, Nick Meyer was somebody who hated the idea of bringing yeah. Spock back to his credit, and he right. hated filming that sequence where, you know, there's hope, uh, his casket has landed on the right. Genesis planet. So much that he didn't film it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was Bob Salen who filmed yeah. it. So uh, here's a here's another memo, not a very important memo, but this is uh, March 25th, 1968. It's an example of when Gene is sort of out the door at Star Trek, you know, looking to replace himself. And uh, he's he's writing, per conversations with John Reynolds, uh, would be appropriate if you could check out availability and price on the following candidates for co-producer or associate producer, depending on the man and his credits, of course, for Star Trek, along with Bob Justman. This is when there was talk of Bob Justman taking over the show, right. which never happened. You know, right. They felt they needed somebody above Bob Justman, who was a writer, and you know that forced you know Bob to ankle. But uh, So the list is Chester Crumholt. Arthur Singer, who ended up working right. on the show under Fred Freiberger, Robert Bleese, S.S. Schweider, John Furrier, who who ended up running the WGA, Sam Peoples, mm-hmm. Frank Paris, Ed Lasko, Dan Ullman, Mel Goldberg, Arthur Brown Jr., and C. League Lester. This list is not necessarily in order of preference, Gene Roddenberry. So, Sam Peoples would have been interesting. Yeah, but you know, boy, I got to tell you, if you've read again his his work on the Star Trek II. Oh yeah. Oh man, that stuffs. But then again, you know, we did an episode on the animated series, and and his episode of the animated series is terrific. It's interesting. Um, there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of negativity about the Freiburger year. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he is as much to blame as people, you know, ordinarily think, because a lot of the scripts that were done for that season were already done by the time he was brought on. Mm-hmm. And the problem was that the that uh, the studio, I think, had just been bought by Paramount. Was that did that happen right at, at that point? It was happening concurrently. It, it with was that, happening. Yeah. And so they were sort of uh, on a big budget crunch. And so basically, I think as much as forty percent of each episode's budget was lopped off the top. So it was a big budget crunch on them in the third season. And just getting any episodes produced up to the level of quality of the you know previous two seasons is miraculous. Yeah, yeah. And I think Freiberger did an amazing job being dropped into this, you know, moderately popular show. Uh, of course, it was, you know, on the brink of extinction uh, after its first season. And even more so after its second season because it was so expensive. And so they figured if we could get this show to be done for less money, then, you know, we'll see what happens. You, and I, I, I'm sorry. I'm I was just saying, so, fair point, but it's a little bit like the Ratner defense uh, for X-Men Last Stand. I refer to, of course, the fact that um, Matthew Vaughn mm-hmm. uh, backed out of... X Men: The Last Stand. He was three pushed, weeks. He was pushed out. Well, either way, he I was, was moving another direction. I was there, <laughs> and it awesome. So, like, <laughs> well, we can. I would love to have that conversation yeah. afterwards. But Ratner stepped in, in with experts. like no time left right. to go and shoot that film. Yep. So it's it's difficult 
to lay the things in that movie at Ratner's feet. In fact, it's it is probably fairer to Brett Ratner to say that it is it's a miracle that the movie got made at all, and just the sheer cojones of standing up and kind of making that film mm-hmm. under the conditions that it was made. Absolutely, none of it changes the fact that that movie blows. You know, <laughs> and it's like, and he's the guy sitting in the chair. So you might be right about about Fred. Um, uh, is is what I'm saying, right? Um, oh, Fred. Now is it Fred? You're on a <laughs> first Fred. name basis. Yes. Huh? Well, we're all writers, aren't we? No. It's 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 somehow <laughs> more disrespectful to refer to him by his last name. Okay. Well, I want to read you this quote. Okay, go. This is uh, Fred Freiberger in the uh, 50 Year Mission. Ed, it wasn't Ed Gross my fault. Interviewed him, and uh, <laughs> please don't hit me again. <laughs> Not the face. No more. Fred Freiberger. No kill I. He said, I've read that the fans didn't like any of the episodes of the third season of True That Hurts Me, but there is another truth. In my travels throughout the United States, Canada, and Europe, I've run into many Star Trek fans, and not one of them has ever treated me with anything less than courtesy and respect. For that, I thank them. But I have to be honest. I thought the worst experience of my life was when I was shot down over Nazi Germany. A Jewish boy from the Bronx parachuted into the middle of 80 million Nazis. Then I joined Star Trek. I was only in a prison camp for two years, but my travail with Star Trek lasted decades. <laughs> God, that's amazing. That's amazing. And by the way, I don't hate every episode in the third season. No, there's I love, quite a few good ones. I uh, love Spectre of the Gun. So do I. Thank and you. And the Enterprise Incident. So uh-huh. do I. Yeah. And uh, you, you can say that the empath has a uh, virtue. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally enjoy the Savage Curtain as a guilty pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Um uh, I, you know, a lot of people love all our yesterdays. Right. Um, there's some really cool stuff in that episode. Yeah. You know, certainly the Spock Zarabeth stuff more so than the witch Salem witch trials. Right. Right. Um, but here's a here's a memo. This is interesting because we were sort of bagging on Sam Peoples a little. This is we- a memo that Sam <laughs> Sam Peoples had that he sent to Gene very early on. It's because Sam, you know, Gene was not a big science fiction fan. He talks about how as a kid he read science fiction, right. but he really educate himself by surrounding himself particularly Sam Peoples right. who you know gave him a bunch of pulp magazines here's a very excerpt from a very long memo that Sam Peoples sent to Gene science fiction has this unique ability when it is done well and Star Trek is to combine both scientific and human extrapolation with sound dramatic principles while several of the suggested stories are apparently quite far out a moment's thought will show that they are simple and humanly motivated suspicion doubt faith hatred fear these are the ingredients. The future backgrounds make them seem different, Sam Peoples. You know, that's that's uh well put. Well, which which just goes to the to the core of what certainly made the original in my mind so good is that these were stories that could have taken place on Bonanza, on any other sort of adventure show. Um and it the only difference is the environment. And sometimes the environment uh, Dude, I would love to see the Bonanza episode of the Doomsday Machine. I mean, actually, I agree with you, <laughs> but I just want to see only, like, cowboys fight the Doomsday Machine. Only Ben Cartwright well, can stop the Doomsday it Machine. Would be, it would be steam-powered and built in a train is what would happen. Right. <laughs> I want to see yeah. that show. It's funny. I'm, I'm looking for memos. This has nothing to do with this episode. Ultimate computer. But this is a memo My about the cage. To Sheriff Dunsell. I'm not sure who wrote this. Uh, this is um, this is after the cage went to network. I'm not sure if this is a, a network executive. It says it, it seems to me that sustaining viewer interest in a woman doing things that should be done by a man will be very difficult. This is about number one, right? And number one will not be a sympathetic character. Correcting this is not difficult. <laughs> I, I, I wish I knew who wrote this. It was not Gene. It was it was just somebody criticizing wow. uh, right. the character. In the early days of spaceflight, men went alone and spent months and years without women. I don't know who wrote this. <laughs> wow. That is just that is just horrible. Wow. You know, I I don't know if that was from the network or if that was it somebody sure sounds he, like it's from the network. He, or somebody that he showed the script to, and unfortunately, I only yeah. have the first page of that memo here. Degree of stupidity oh, wait, can only who, wait, possibly come this? from a network. Um, what's this? Especially if so brazen. Well, I mean, they, there was a lot of there was a lot of backlash against well, the number one character, but I think it was mostly mm-hmm. motivated by 
it was the because it was played by the producer's girlfriend. Yes, yes exactly. Uh, Which is a perfectly justifiable reason to kind of have backlash against that. Here, here's a, here's a description of some potential episodes. Ghosts. I have no particular storyline in mind here, but I'm interested in whether or not we can do a story on a planet in which the real life there is the life of protoplasm and spirits, in which our Enterprise crewmen are the interlopers. So this is Gene Gene's ideas for now turnabout. Again, no specific storyline, but rather a situation, a place in which some sort of sex warp switches the gender of anyone who goes ashore. Can we, without becoming Faye, safely do a story of Bill Shatner becoming a woman? Well, well you can do it yes. safely, just you can't do it well. Look, and you shouldn't do it well. You last. know what? I, I would argue with you that it's not done well. I think it's done extremely well. Um, it's wacky, but... Shatner's performance is unfreaking believably good. I, I would agree with you about Shatner's performance. I don't think it's done well. I think this whole concept it's clunky that it's a woman can't be in command of a starship. But I, I do like to think that that's Janice Lester's perspective. Yeah, yeah. That it's not that that's not true because yeah. clearly there would probably have been there would would have been women uh, in, in command of a starship. Yeah. Um, and later stories prove that true. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh my God, it's just there's such a wealth of material in the in these archives, um, and I, it probably isn't really serving our discussion of Great Birds of the Galaxy. The one thing I do want to say about Gene Kuhn, of course, was he was responsible, and a lot of people don't realize, for creating the Klingons, right. the Organian Peace Treaty, the Prime Directive, right. so many things that we associate with the DNA of Star Trek vi- and Ron Berry's vision Trek. were Gene yeah. L. Kuhn. And, of course, Gene Alcoon, like Gene before him, got completely burnt out and by the middle of second season left. Now, part of that was also Gene had come back right. and had opinions. Right. And Specifically yeah. on the level of humor in certain episodes that happened yeah. while he was gone. And DC Fontana was slamming him, saying that a lot of Gene's stories were very similar, which was true because once you had talked a computer to death for the seventh time, right. it was getting a little redundant. Um, but, but, but... What Gene brought in terms of character with metamorphosis, what he did in terms of comedy, you know, in, in terms of discovering new, t- new talent like David Gerald and Trouble with Tribbles, uh, you can't overstate the importance of Gene Kuhn, the Star Trek. And again, his contribution gets lost because he died so young. So he wasn't at the conventions and right. he wasn't, you know, giving interviews and, and stuff. Um, you know, and then yeah. you have Fred Freiberger, who we talked about, who was a custodian right. um, for the franchise. Um, custodian of the stolen plans, <laughs> <Right. laughs> and uh, and 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 uh, then you get to you know Star Trek: The Motion Picture, where Gene is sort of back in the driver's seat right. for a while, and then Nick, who we who we talked about, right? But you know, and then it, and then really Leonard Nimoy becomes the next is the he, franchise. He becomes is... the next bird. <laughs> uh, they flipped him the bird. <laughs> yeah, it, it it's interesting. I, I think you know. Uh, Star Trek Three, as I said before, you know, diminishes the the power of Star Trek a little bit, but it's interesting to see what Leonard did with, you know, directing that project and then producing uh, later. Um, it, this was his chance to sort of put his mark on something that he felt very strongly about, uh, whether or not that was things that were actually you know, good for the long run of Star Trek. I don't know. I, I couldn't say. Right. Um, but I think he certainly, uh, you know, tried to treat the characters well and tried to give uh, everyone in the cast their sort of uh, moments. Mission Impossible, you give everybody a page. Yeah. 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 Um, I, don't think, I don't think that helps Star Trek. Yeah. I think, I think it's entertaining. Um, but, uh, I think in the long run, for me at least, and I know I'm going to get backlash about this, I think that, you know, stories about Chekhov and Sulu and, and Uhura aren't really all that interesting. Nope. Da, da, da. Click, click, click. Yeah. You're an idiot, Darren yeah. Document signed Walter Koenig. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't appreciate your attitude completely uh, on your podcast thing, whatever it is you're doing there. and then of course um after leonard after leonard comes uh the next generation and rick berman and his importance to star trek can't be overstated because here's a guy who oversaw not only next generation and and had quickly sort of 
taken over uh, or or steered the, mm-hmm. the, the ship. For the uh, next 20 years. For the next 20 years, whether Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager and Enterprise. I mean, that is. I mean, he literally he was the custodian of Star Trek longer than Gene and yeah. four movies, and four movies, four movies, four. Yeah. Wait, let me count. Generations, mm-hmm. First Contact, Insurrection, Nemesis. You're right. Four movies. Yeah. I guess I just try and put Nemesis out of my mind. Right. Um, but yes, you're absolutely I wish right. I could. Um, Some things you can't unsee. And you know, look, Rick has 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 um, has, has suffered the slings and arrows of some aspects of Star Trek fandom for a long time. But I, I, I do think you have to give him credit for taking Gene's vision very seriously. And while he is not a fan of the original, or, or you know, he was a network executive who um, had the opportunity to sort of basically babysit Gene mm-hmm. and seized on that opportunity to create a, a creative position for himself. And, and uh, you know, he, he uh, you know... Uh, Are you putting him in the role of Melicon? <laughs> I wasn't. I was. I. 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 I look. I, I think there have been some very unfair criticisms of of Rick. I. I think that the way that he saw Star Trek is probably different than the way I see Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think particularly given how you see uh, the interpretation of Star Trek subsequent to Rick, there is a certain reevaluation, reappraisal of his tenure that sure. is in order. Here's, but, here's the thing. I, I think I think you're right in that he tried to continue Roddenberry's vision of Star Trek. The problem was, what was Roddenberry's vision of Star Trek at that point in 1987? Yes, right. but he could only go right. on what Gene was telling exactly. him, right. which was the perfectibility of man, right. we don't argue, right. we, we, there's no conflict between our characters. Which is ludicrous. Completely. Of course. And, and that's not what the original was. No, right. But... But but Gene, you know, had basically sold this utopian bill of goods mm-hmm. to everyone because he'd reinvented himself. As, yeah, absolutely. You yeah. know, I, I mean, there's a great quote. Again, I'll quote my own book, but um, where um, uh, peace is good for business. Strangus, uh, Sam Strangus, uh, Greg Strangus, who had developed Next Generation before right. he was replaced by Gene Roddenberry, says that he he thinks Gene, in a way, saw himself as a better writer than L. Ron Hubbard. But that he felt oh. he should have had a religion, right? For like, sure, they famously he was, had a conversation about that, you know, right. and and that 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 basically Star Trek was his religion, mm-hmm. and he sort of resented the fact that, you know, um, Hubbard, who he considered a mediocre science fiction writer, was able to um, correctly, <laughs> uh, you know, launch this, uh, uh, you know, re- religion, you know, and and, well, and just because Hubbard was better at real estate. Yes, <laughs> uh, the thing is though. That I think, first of all, I think the the religious comparison I think is dead on because mm-hmm. um, it, Berman, I believe, was incredibly faithful to his understanding in a very sort of conservative, orthodox way mm-hmm. of the uh, sort of the tone and style that Roddenberry had said with the Next Generation, "Thou shalt, and it shall be Great. this." But he was also, you know, all credit to the man, smart enough to hire. Um, Maurice Hurley, say what you want about him, but like some good things happened under Maurice Hurley. Uh, Michael Piller, who completely, I think, was was truly like if there was a great bird was Rick, then um, Michael Piller was kind of the also pretty the great Kuhn bird. Of, yeah, he was the Gene Coon. He was the right? Gene Coon to For Berman's Next Roddenberry. Generation, yeah. Deep Space Nine, Voyager. And you felt his influence. I mean, to this day, I will tell people that um, in terms of how I was trained to approach television and how to write it. That I come from the the Star Trek school, mm-hmm. uh, that I consider you know Michael Pillar to be one of my great grandfathers in terms right. of how to to do the job that I do, uh, and you know it's it's fascinating to me that that somebody like uh, like Rick who brought this again this incredibly orthodox reading of what Roddenberry wanted would then sort of say okay Ira Bear how about you pick up the ball on D Space Nine and you run it and if you've met Ira you know. That you know, that he is, if you kind of try to picture somebody who is the platonic ideal of someone who is going to give you a show that fits into what Gene Roddenberry thought Star Trek was in 1987, he is the exact opposite of that. Mm-hmm. And yet, I think he gave us the show that that most closely resembled and felt like 
uh, the original series to me. Very much uh, so. So, it, but it's that's just, also because yeah. Ira was a fan of the yes, original show. Yes, one hundred percent. And most of the people who worked on Deep Space Nine were fans of the original show. Absolutely. Uh, but you're absolutely right about Hurley because Hurley was a guy, you know, who did not speak softly. He just carried a big stick and he whacked people around with it. Mm-hmm. But that's sort of what Star Trek needed because they were sort of paralyzed because Gene couldn't make decisions. He was rewriting stuff, you know, and 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 Hurley came in and sort of righted the ship for better or for worse. And I do think the writing strike had a lot to do with sort of crippling that, that show. But it is, it's, it's, it's Pillar who comes in and has a real vision for making it a character-centric show. And I think you can attribute some of Rick Berman's failings to the fact that, you know, not only was he a very successful documentary documentarian uh, and executive, but so when he says sort of things like, let's not have the writers come to set and let's have a very regimented... Um, where you know production and writing you know never cross a lot of that came from the fact you know, he was an executive he didn't come up through um, the system you know so he didn't see the value in a lot of these things which are really important um, and his documentary documentarian that is sort of auteur driven where you know you are like the be all and end all of a documentary mm-hmm. so I, I feel like a lot of that influenced his approach to Star Trek and um, and then you know of course. Uh, uh, you know, there was the gene of it all because, you know, as long as Gene was alive, you never knew when he was going to rear his head and, you know, say, I don't like what you're doing. You're gone. Right. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, um, you know, and I, I think, look, I think I, I think that, you know, with Enterprise, they didn't take the risks they needed to. Um, uh, you hear Brandon talking about it in retrospect. They had some very interesting things, roads they could have gone down. You know, part of that was the network at that point. Part of that was also... And it, it seemed to have become a paycheck gig to a lot of people by right. then. Um, there wasn't the passion that they had earlier. I don't know. But I, I think to just dismiss Rick's contribution at a hand is a mistake because I think he brought so much to the show. And the show could have been – he brought a sort of quality control to it, mm-hmm. you right. know. And, and um, uh, you know, it's – it's. Um, he was a very, very significant figure in in, in Star Trek, and um, well, he kept it going, and he yes, kept he it going, he kept it going. And Star Trek was arguably never more popular than it was under his auspices. Sure, you know that. that I think that, we can prove that mathematically, quite yeah. frankly. Yeah, just looking at the numbers on the ratings for two shows, kind of going at the same time, there are shows that now would kill. Yeah, for oh, numbers yeah. like what Star Trek had just in syndication. Frankly, at the time on network, there were shows that would have killed for the numbers Star Trek had uh, in syndication. Uh, absolutely. And then he turned into a true franchise because they were able to spin off Deep Space Nine. They were able to spin off Voyager. They spin off, spin off Voyager. It became a machine for, for better or worse, which you're starting to see happen now again with Star Trek, where CBS realizes the value in multiple Star Trek shows and, 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 and how they can help build up their streaming platform using this brand, Star Trek as a brand. And I guess that's a conversation definitely for another day. Right. What 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 does it mean? What does it mean to be Star Trek? To be a brand, right. yeah. you know, to be an IP, um, and, and and you know the showrunners we haven't discussed uh, the Great Birds we haven't discussed certainly JJ subsequently becomes quote unquote a Great Bird of the Galaxy and now Kurtzman who is running the Star Trek universe very much in the way that Berman did twenty years ago you now have Kurtzman overseeing this massive right. Star Trek enterprise. Tapestry. <laughs> yeah, Enterprise, for lack of a better word, this Star Trek Enterprise, um, whether it be Star Trek Discovery, the rollout of this new animated series, um, well, the other spinoffs we're, they we're have still in development. Too, it's too early to tell what's going to happen with that. Very Absolutely. Because right is, now it's all, you know, it's all stories in the in the news. Right. It's deadline articles right now. Yeah. Well, but, no, I mean, that's, but, that's, but look, the reality is. But we know what the we, we knew the about the proof this of the pudding happen. is in the eating. So, yeah, but we knew about we all this it. stuff ages yeah. ago. And and of course, if if you're running a, a streaming platform that's a pay to play platform, you need to to find the kind of IP that is going to get people to pay. Whether it's Disney with Star Wars and Marvel, and with CBS, look what's their franchise. You know, are people going to pay for Mission Possible TV series? Probably not. You know, The Good Wife it helped put them on the map, but it's Star Trek that's going to keep people coming back for more so it's inevitable that not only will these shows um be made but they will continue to be made you know so at least you know you're at a point where it's nearly a 52 week a year uh where star trek's on virtually every week in some iteration well i think that's inevitable i can i can watch the original 79 over and over again every day well we know for that. a year we, we know that. but 79 i'm weird. every day we know this 
Um, so anyway, I mean, look, there have been a lot of people who have steered the ship, who have navigated these turbulent waters. Everyone has an opinion about <laughs> Star Trek who watches it. But, um, you know, until you've sat in that seat, you can't really know what it's like. I suppose not. Yeah. No. And I don't think I don't think we're going to get a chance to know what it's like, but we can sure talk about what it's like. Ad nauseum we can, apparently. Uh, so, yeah, this is an interesting discussion of the Great Brooks of the Galaxy, and I want to remind all our listeners that you can follow Inglorious Trek Experts on Twitter and Instagram at Inglorious Trek, as well as on Facebook, where you can continue the conversation by suggesting future show topics and give us feedback on every episode. In addition, if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars at Apple Podcasts. I don't think Walter Koenig will now. Thanks a lot. Darren. His review is going to be fantastic. Uh, yeah. You can hear new episodes of Inglorious Trek Experts every Sunday. We're moving to Sundays, by the way. We are. Wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah. I th- kind of like daylight savings time going away. Yeah, yeah. Right. So we Good will job, now, now uh, new episodes every Sunday. Uh, and um, And by the way, if you're a fan of Star Trek Discovery, don't miss our new podcast, Disco Nights, with host Chase Masterson and special guests every week, with new episodes premiering every Thursday night. So we'll be listening. I'm looking forward to Absolutely. hearing our show. It's going to be a lot of fun. Because Disco is not dead. Disco, Disco is not dead. Disco lives. And finally, a very special thanks to Bill Ritter and everyone here at Electric for making the show possible. We couldn't do it without you. So until next year, on behalf of Ashley E. Miller, who's our guest here, and my co-host, Darren Dockerman, keep on trekking. Ingloriously, of course. Engage. This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.